Hello, everyone, and welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark paths and waterways that wind around Delmarva. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Thank you so much for taking some time out to listen today. What we do on this podcast is look at events and tragedies such as crimes, natural and man-made disasters, or any other event that has helped shape Delmarva or impacted those on Delmarva. Delmarva is a region on the east coast of the United States that encompasses all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. I may be a little partial, though, as I've lived on Delmarva my whole life, except when I was away at college. I feel that Delmarva is its own unique piece of America, and I feel that I'm lucky to live here. I'm very fortunate to live on Delmarva, and even though Delmarva encompasses all or parts of three different states, It really does feel like a community and that everybody has things in common, no matter what part of Delmarva you live on. That's just kind of my personal observations, but I do really think that Delmarva is a wonderful place to live. And I'll mention some of those things that that serve to make Delmarva unique. I will mention some of those things when I get to some updates near the end of this episode. Before I start any episode, I do just like to go into a few pieces of information. One is that, as with most episodes of this podcast, we will be dealing with some things that some people may find disturbing or hard to listen to. And I admit there are some instances where I struggle to find ways to describe things and still keep keep the telling of that information dignified and respectful. So yes, this can definitely be an episode that will be harder to listen to. A couple of other things. I have mentioned some of my other podcasts before. I have two, and one is very similar to this podcast, except it's wider in geographical region. And it's called Mystifyingly Missing True Crime and Thought-Provoking Events. If you are interested in that type of content, I will leave a link in the description. And considering you're here, you may be, you know, interested in hearing more information and more cases just from a broader range. There is a case that I'm going over and reviewing on that podcast that I find very, very interesting. And since I did the first episode and uploaded it, I found a book that I needed on Kindle Unlimited. So, you know, I'll be able to go in there and put a little more information and detail um, to the episode. And again, I just find it very intriguing. And it goes back to 1930, where a family of four was killed on Thanksgiving Eve. Though there was a prime suspect, it still remains unsolved. And looking at it from the year 2022, 
there are definitely some things that we would find very odd about the handling of the crime scene. So again, I just kind of think this is one of the more interesting cases that I've covered um, on that podcast. So, you know, again, I will leave the link to the podcast in the description in case you want to check that out. Now with any of the podcasts, if you subscribe or like or leave a comment, depending on the way you're listening and what that particular app allows, it does help support the podcast by growing the audience um, with the algorithms that are used to determine you know, how podcasts are suggested. Also, um, I've had this particular episode for Danger on Delmarva in mind and all the research and you know, information written about it, but it was kind of a short story and I wanted an episode to have a little more substance, but I usually have either the TV or other podcasts on while I'm doing things and I happen to hear this case come up in a very short form, like maybe a two-minute section and I just thought maybe that was a sign that it was time to go ahead and record this episode because I do have a couple of updates as well. Unfortunately, my microphone did not really want to cooperate, but I think I have that all fixed. But I also want to thank everybody for kind of hanging in there because I understand at times the recording or sound may not be like absolutely fantastic um, and may sometimes sound a little bit away. But I am trying to find ways to continue to improve that. The microphone I have now, as long as it continues to work, is a much better microphone than what I started out with. But I do realize that it's still not, you know, like I said, really, really great. So with all the cyber deals that are out there, I have been looking at a few things that might help improve that sound quality and production. And um you know, kind of hinting to my husband at times that that might be a good Christmas present. So, you know, hopefully by this time next month, there will be a little bit better quality to the sound and production of the podcast. For this and each episode, I will have my sources linked in the description of the episode. If the source has a paywall to it, I will leave the link, but then leave other information after that, such as for newspapers the name of the newspaper and the date, so that if you want to try to search it in another way and read up about it, um, possibly there could be another way by using that newspaper name and date. Also, I did mention that the main story today is a little short, and I will have a couple of updates, and I hope that you don't mind if near the end I go a little bit off of Delmarva to the western side of Maryland, just because the incident was very unique to the whole area. With all that being said, let's get into today's episode. You'll see that there's a little bit of a theme going on throughout um, the episode, and that theme is about animals. Now, I love animals a lot, like so many people, and when it comes to our pets, pets are really a big part of our life. They may meet us at the door when we get home, or as my cat does, sits at the window and looks like he's on a throne reigning over the neighborhood. 
A dog may come running, wagging his tail, excited to see his family. And there are all different kinds of pets. There are smaller mammals such as gerbils or hamsters, and then other different types of pets such as birds and reptiles. I actually did have a pet bird or four if you want to be exact, but they weren't really your traditional birds either. They were chickens. And while some may not consider chickens a pet, at six years old, I considered them my pets. But if I were to try to bring them home or into my home, I'm sure my parents would have had something to say about that. So as we look around at all the different animals that people may keep as pets, we do at times delve into an area where some people may feel that others should not own certain types of pets. The reasons behind that could be varied. It could be that the person doesn't have the appropriate resources or amount of space that's needed to properly take care of the animal. There's also possibilities that they may be still wild animals and even if raised from a very young age, still keep those natural instincts and can sometimes lead to tragedy. The first example that pops into my mind is actually for a hybrid of a wolf dog that many years ago one of my neighbors had. And while the dog part of it was domesticated, there was still a lot of that natural instinct from the wolf. Unfortunately, this particular case fell into two different categories that the wolf dog was not really suited, at least in many people's opinion, to be kept as a pet. But more so, the owner was not exactly the best owner either and didn't properly care for him. So small animals started to go missing or be found in people's yards dead. And when I went outside one day to investigate what looked like a small deceased animal in my yard, I was alerted that something might not be right by my dog. And just a few feet out of the door, when I looked up, the wolf dog was standing there in the woods. So he was at the edge of the woods, but thankfully I was close enough to the door that slowly backing up and getting in there, I could close the door before it approached. Other neighbors had even more frightening experiences of having family members trying to get into their car while the wolf dog was approaching and growling. And in regards to this type of hybrid mix, some states have very particular laws that govern if and how a pet should be housed in cases like this, where there is a hybrid or what some may consider a dangerous animal. I do know the owner of this wolf dog did not meet those requirements, yet it didn't seem like anything was ever done. So while there are instances where neighbors are alerted to the fact that there is more of a wild animal in the neighborhood, there are sometimes cases where no one else is aware that there is a wild or exotic pet living in the house or even apartment right next to theirs. 
So we're going back to 2002 when a man named Ronald Huff suddenly started to not communicate, to not show up for work. And that was very unusual, as it would be for many people. What brought even more concern to Ronald's friends and co-workers and family was that they knew he had a slight injury before. See, Ronald loved his pets. These were, however, ones that would fall into the very unconventional pet category. Ronald had shown co-workers an injury that was sustained from one of his pets, a Nile monitor lizard. Now, personally, when I think of monitor lizards, the first thing that pops into my mind is a Komodo dragon. And while a Komodo dragon is definitely not what Ronald had in his home, I can just kind of envision that same shape, the same gait to their walk, and the idea that with Komodo dragons, that when they bite someone, it can be extremely dangerous for that person. When I was growing up, the theory behind how a Komodo dragon killed was that the person would get an infection, or I guess I should say the thing that the Komodo dragon is trying to eat will get an infection and it will spread and the Komodo dragon just kind of waits until the person expires. However, in 2009, it was found that it was actually a venom and not bacteria. Part of the source for that myth is most likely that when a Komodo would bite someone, bacteria can still play a role. Whether it is possibly bacteria in the Komodo dragon's mouth, or just the fact that whoever or whatever he bites has an open wound and that makes it more susceptible for bacteria to get in to the system. So that may have been the reason why the original theory was that it was bacteria from the dragon's mouth that would kill. So I have been talking about the Komodo dragon and while the animals that Ronald had in his home were much smaller being the Nile monitor lizard, it does share attributes to its much larger cousins. It also has venom that it uses to kill, but it's used usually on smaller animals, rodents, birds, things like that. Once bitten, the victim may experience swelling in the area that they were bitten, a drop in their blood pressure, and blood clot inhibition. So once somebody starts bleeding, it's going to be more difficult to stop that, which also, I would assume, makes the prey more weak and makes it easier for the monitor lizard to get. I did go over the information for the Komodo dragon, just as those are the monitor lizards that I think more people are familiar with. But while the Nile monitor lizard is not as big as the Komodo dragon, it is the longest lizard in Africa. There's a lot of varying information at, about how big the Nile monitor can get. On the small side, they can just be under 4 feet at 3 feet 11 inches. And 
averages up to seven feet, three inch, inches. There have been some found that were about eight feet long. So even though they're not as big as the Komodo, they are still quite large, you know, especially if you see one of these lizards coming at you. But what happens when someone tries to keep one of these non-traditional pets as a pet in an apartment with very little room? Though I have found that many people say that Nile monitors can actually, you know, have a successful time in captivity. They can actually thrive in captivity. But they're they're not the pets that you want to get down on the floor with and roll around with or play fetch with. That's not going to happen, even if you found or bought a monitor lizard as they were small and really raised it and developed, I guess, to the best of your ability, a relationship with a Nile monitor. It's not going to be friendly all of the time. They can be quite aggressive. So on that fateful day in 2002, police were sent to Ronald's home or apartment to do a welfare check. Anytime officers are dispatched to something like this, there's always the possibility that it could be absolutely nothing is wrong. The person's cell phone just isn't working and they you know, haven't had a chance to make any other calls, something like that, down to finding a body, whether the person has died from natural causes, an accident, foul play. It could be any of those reasons. So police officers are trained to pretty much expect everything. No one could have expected what they saw. When they got to the apartment, there was no answer. Yet, they heard something moving around inside. So they did want to get in there and do that welfare check instead of just assuming everything was okay. It did take a few minutes at least to gain access to the apartment with one of Ronald's neighbors standing outside with the police talking to them. When the police opened the door, they were met with a foul stench, which that same neighborhood actually said started to get into their own bathroom. The rambling of many, many feet and the hissing of many forked tongues. And when I say many, I don't mean the one that Ronald just started out with. I'm talking seven Nile monitor lizards shuffling around the apartment with Ronald sitting up against the door. So that probably would have been difficult as well, getting in there. But Ronald was no longer alive. And whether he died of an unknown medical condition, an accident, or even venom or infection, we will never know. The autopsy was not able to determine the actual cause of death. And you might be asking why exactly. It's because when the police officers opened the doors and saw the monitor lizards and they saw the largest one standing there 
with blood on his chin. By looking at Ronald, the only conclusion that they could really come up with is the lizards were consuming Ronald. As to whether or not Ronald was dead or alive, prior to this, it's not known. One quote that was made to a newspaper by a colleague or former colleague of Ronald's said that police told him that Ronald was alive when the monitor lizard started to feed on him. However, since the cause of death was never established, I don't know if the person misunderstood um, or, and this is just a possibility, just a question that I have, is could he have been embellishing some, leaning into the shock value that would come with something like this? The neighbor, Jeff Waldinger, that had been outside of the apartment when the police were trying to gain entry, did say, too, that he could see the molars in Ronald's face. So whether or not he got just a glimpse or was able to actually view it for a longer period of time, I don't know. But what could have led to this besides the fact that Nile monitors do have venom, even though it's usually used on much smaller prey? A bite from a monitor lizard, except for maybe the Komodos, probably would not kill a human being. I do ask myself, though, what if it was the venom not from one, but from seven Nile monitors? Would that necessarily have killed him? We may never know because we just don't have the information to determine how Ronald died. And I don't mean to retell this story with any disrespect towards Ronald, but rather to point out the importance of making sure that your pets have everything they need to keep both them and yourself happy and healthy. Not having enclosures or cages for the Niles created an atmosphere that almost seems like the lizards ran the home. It was, like I said, an apartment, and just from my familiarity in the area, I I don't really see a lot of very big apartments, um, plus based on a picture I saw of the outside, it doesn't really look like the apartment could have been huge. So having all of those lizards, having to feed them every day, which normally it's chicken that would be given to them, but that's a lot of chicken every day. Factors such as the ability to keep up with their feeding because chicken, even back then, was not inexpensive. The lizards were also kept inside while I did read a quote earlier and mentioned that earlier as well, that monitors can actually thrive in captivity. One has to wonder when the term captivity is used, does that mean that they are still in an open enclosure such as a zoo or a large outside pen or in a home where they can't get to the sunshine consistently and there's just not really a lot of resources for them. They, I'm sure, felt trapped, which could lead to aggression. I have to say too that 
At times, this story has been presented as an urban legend. The first time I heard about this was actually on an Animal Planet show, and I forget the name of it, um, but it was about exotic pets turning on their owners. And, you know, Nile monitor lizards count as exotic pets or wild pets, because there was also a case of a man keeping either a lion or tiger in a New York City apartment. So that, yeah, I really feel for that cat kept in a very small environment. And of course, for his owner and his owner's family members and loved ones after he was attacked by his pet. So we can see how important it is to make sure a pet has enough room to move that even though they're outside of their natural habitat, um, if they are a wild or exotic animal, we need to try to be good stewards and caretakers to our beloved pets. So, like I said, this one was a little gory, I guess is the only way to describe it. But so was this an urban legend that's been used to try to teach people about the responsibility that comes with pet ownership? No, it was a real case. Uh, I don't believe it would have been on Animal Planet or possibly Discovery. It, it was on a learning network. Um, but I also did find newspaper articles that were all written within a day or two of each other, not only locally, but nationally and internationally about this story. So I doubt that that many newspapers could get it wrong along with, you know, a production company that was working for whatever station that was. But while it's not an urban legend or a parable, we should all take something away from it about making sure our pets have everything that they need. So I did say this was a pretty short episode, but I do want to give a couple pieces of information that I want to add to stories that I've covered in the past. One is about Chessie. The name Chessie had been used for a couple of different things, one being a, a picture of a cat sleeping on a train. But also in the Chesapeake Bay, there were sightings of an animal that nobody could identify. And it looked very large and long. So people started to wonder if there was a Chesapeake Bay version of the Loch Ness Monster. So just to give everybody an idea of how I look at sightings that some may consider to be a cryptid, I guess I would say I'm an optimistic skeptic. I know that sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, but what I mean by that is when there's pictures or video, other things that are brought forward that show the supposed existence of something like Nessie or Bigfoot slash Yeti, anything like that. I'm skeptical because to this point, I've not seen to my understanding, any evidence that conclusively says that they exist. I usually want to go for the simplest answer, otherwise known as Occam's razor. And usually I feel it falls within some natural categories, 
even if they might be a little outlandish. But I also don't want to close my mind because there are discoveries made every day, including still animals being discovered. The, the difference with something like Chessie or Nessie um, is their size. When I did the episode on Chessie, most of the information that I found looked at a manatee by the same name. This manatee would make treks up to the Chesapeake Bay and even one year made it to Rhode Island. He was successfully trapped, and as of last year, though he had a close call and had become emaciated, he was able to be rescued and saved, thankfully. But still, going back to the 1990s, Chessie would make an appearance every now and then. So when I did that episode, I concluded that I thought Chessie was most likely well, Chessie the sea creature was Chessie the manatee. However, after I recorded the episode and I was looking for pictures, I saw a picture that didn't quite look right. It was a picture of a long fish named the pig-nosed sturgeon. So that one looks a little different than other sturgeon. But sturgeon can get very big in size depending on a few different factors in that one of them is where they live because in colder climates up north, it takes them longer to mature, but at the same time, they do tend to live longer. According to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, but things like the time it takes to mature and how their eggs are used has really damaged the population to the point that all five populations of Atlantic sturgeon, which each of them has their own name and some slight variances, but all five of them are listed on either the endangered or threatened species list. To give you an idea, back in 1887, sturgeon were fished to the point that it was estimated that about 7 million pounds of sturgeon had been fished. In 1905, so about 18 years later, that number had dropped to 20,000. And even further, in 1989, the number dropped to 400. So it might be looking at the numbers and thinking that people aren't, you know, maybe catching them as much anymore or fishing for them. But no, the reason they're dropping those numbers is that the number of sturgeon in the wild has dwindled significantly as well. Their eggs were used for caviar, stopping any population growth before there was even a chance that they could be born. And while at times they could lay anywhere between 400,000 and 2 million eggs, when many of them are being taken to use for that, what was considered a delicacy of caviar, as well as the just high amount or number of fish that were caught without replenishment. And back then, they probably didn't know the impact that it could have on the sturgeon population. So that makes seeing a sturgeon a relatively rare event. Sturgeon also have these bony growths. I've seen them called dorsally on the back, and that can look 
I would say quite intimidating if you're in the water and especially aren't expecting to see this long creature with these dorsal-like fins or bony growths, depending on what source you read, I can understand why someone would think it's some type of unknown or cryptid creature. To me, this makes more sense than having an extremely large creature like some purport Nessie to be. Um, Even though Chessie has many times been described as more of a snake-like creature, so sturgeon could fit in there in the fact that they are so long. So I did just want to give that update with new information. Uh, I was really surprised that when searching for Chessie, nothing came up. Um, The picture in question, though, once I started to actually look for images, the one that showed the sturgeon was actually from a sturgeon in, um, in Canada. So, you know, it wasn't really the same type of sturgeon, but it did still show the length that they could get to. Next is an update about the Assateague ponies. If you've heard me talk before on other episodes regarding animals, you may remember that I have discussed the Assateague ponies before. Unfortunately, last year, a mare named Moonshadow was struck and killed by a car. Her foal, which was subsequently named Moonbeam, was with her and both were injured. But Moonshadow, the mare, eventually succumbed to her injuries. Now, there are actually two separate herds of ponies on Assateague. One is on the Maryland side, and those um, ponies are highly controlled to keep the herd at around 80 to 100 animals. Contraceptive shots are actually given to keep those numbers down, and they do try to give every mare at least one chance of producing a foal. On the outset, this might seem kind of counterintuitive in the fact that the population isn't growing and we want to make sure that the population is maintained. But I do have to wonder if it's done to help make sure that more animals aren't possibly getting onto the road and being hit or making sure that other resources such as their natural food supplies stay stay replenished. So there is a reason why they are limiting the number of births or horses in the herd. But in that particular case, it may be worth it to make sure that all of the herd stays healthy rather than having a large herd without the resources to properly take care of them. So this actually, you know, going back to the story about Ronald Huff, is recognizing the needs of the animal that you're taking care of. The other herd is in Assateague, Virginia, even though sometimes you'll hear them referred to as Shinkatig ponies because that's a whole different thing on pony, sorry, pony penning, which is an event that happens most years. But on the Assateague side, the Shinkatig Volunteer Fire Department is actually the ones in control of the herd. Um, that might seem a little odd, but still kind of go back to pony penning if you want to look up information on that. On the Virginia side, 
there's not as much interaction with the horses. They're pretty much left to stay in the wild unless something happens and they do need to intervene, such as an injury. But Moonshadow had been hit on the Maryland side. But after consideration and observing Moonbeam, it was determined that her best chance would be going to the Assateague, Virginia side. Um, the explanation was not really clear as to why that was initially thought as the better option. But even once sent there in you know, the company of other horses, she wasn't really able to survive in the wild. So she was taken to a stables named Stony Creek Stables in Pennsylvania that does take care of the Assateague ponies when needed. So Moonbeam will spend her life at Stony Creek Stables with the love and attention that she deserves and being surrounded by other horses. Now, this also then shows the importance of respecting the boundaries of wildlife. When in the wilderness or forests, even if that wilderness is controlled by a park system, it's still important not to approach animals or feed them. While it's very, very tempting to approach an animal, especially, say, a horse if it looks very docile or some of the deer, it's not in anybody's best interest to do so. Horses or ponies, I, they've been called both horses and ponies, but they are not used to eating things like apples or carrots, which is something that we see on TV in the movies, that someone will bring one of those items to a horse to snack on. But the horses in Assateague have never had that experience. And to have them eat something that's unusual will, will really cause issues with their digestive tract. In another instance, though not on the Delmarva Peninsula, but in one of the Carolinas, I had heard some time back that a horse choked on a treat that someone had given to him, an apple, I believe. It also makes any of the wildlife more comfortable around humans. And while some may feel that's you know, kind of a bonus being able to be so close to nature, it can also make the animal a little more aggressive if they start to like what humans bring. So even if you're not the person who brought something to the animal to eat or interacted with the animal, what it can do is make them complacent or more comfortable around humans, and they're more apt to approach a human. In the case of having a roadway nearby, that can lead to like something that happened with Moonshadow. To tell a personal story on this, um, probably it had to be over 20, 25 years ago. I know I'm dating myself, but I wanted to go to Shinkatigue and Assateague, but my mom didn't want me to go alone. Um, Either I was in my late teens, early 20s, possibly. So she said she would ride with me down there. And there's kind of a nature loop that you can drive around. Plus, there are roads to get to beaches that are accessible in the area. So while we're driving, we see this animal that kind of looks like a deer, but not quite. But it's very small. So, you know, it looks very confused as well. 
at that time, some other people were standing around it and discussing what to do. And, you know, I kind of asked a question too about, you know, if they'd seen anybody approach it and just some general things were discussed about what should be done. So we all thought if we see a park ranger, we're going to let them know. And if we don't see one by the time we leave, we'll make sure to stop by the visitor center. So we went up a little further driving, but when we came back, there were people trying to actually interact with the animal. And this may have been, you know, with very good intentions and the fact that, you know, they might have thought that they needed to feed him because he did look a little thin um, or try to get him away from the road. So my mother and I did decide to like actively track down a park ranger. And when we did, the ranger was aware of this animal. It was actually a Sika elk. And that's kind of like a small deer. It's not native to the U.S. It's actually native to Asia. And sometime further back, someone decided to like introduce a small number of Sika elk to James Island, which is, you know, in the same vicinity. And a herd grew from that. So again, not an, a species that is naturally there, but they do have a presence and everyone wants to make sure that they're taken care of. The ranger did also say there was, a, um, I guess they would be called doe elks. I'm not really sure, but one that had just also given birth and the little orphaned elk was feeding from that deer as well. That deer, I guess the mother or elk, the motherly instinct kind of kicked in and she was taking care of her child as well as the other. So at least that little elk was taken care of, but his mother had actually been hit by a car. So the next time you have this really, really big urge to interact with wildlife, it would probably be best not to not only for yourself, but, you know, if it's some type of prey animal, you don't want to put anybody or anything in a situation where they might be harmed, even if it was originally done with good intentions. But in most cases, what are the odds that we would come across a very wild animal in our daily life? We probably wouldn't. So there's also dangers presented by the small wild animals. And unfortunately, earlier this year in Ocean City, Maryland, one raccoon, which was later determined to be rabid, attacked two women. You know, once the raccoon was, I guess, trapped or apprehended, they did run the test and it was positive for rabies. The two women were not together, so it wasn't like the one raccoon attacked two women at one time. They were actually separate and within a couple of hours of each other. That's also important too, you know, to keep an eye out for any odd behavior as if you're also walking a pet or outside yourself, you don't want to be complacent and just thinking that, oh, it's a raccoon. And going over a little bit further to Western Maryland, there was actually a bobcat that was positive for rabies. And the the only way they caught the bobcat is someone accidentally hit it with their car. 
So they were able to determine, you know, that it did in fact have rabies. And so we did deviate to Western Maryland for the bobcat attack. But there's another animal that I just want to tell a couple stories about that I read and found really interesting. It is also, again, on the western shore. And they were two bear attacks. When you think of Maryland, probably bear attack would be one of the furthest things from your mind. But there have been at least two relatively recent bear attacks that I could find. The first one was pretty severe and that happened in that happened in November of 2016. A woman was at her daughter's house. Her name was Karen Osborne and she is 63 years old. She was walking near her daughter's house when she was attacked. She was able actually to get a phone call out to 911. So part of her attack was actually heard on the 911 tape. Ms. Osborne had some pretty severe injuries. Her arm had been fractured, her pelvis was fractured, and she had gashes on her head and arms that needed 70 stitches. And she had a long time to recover. For at least the foreseeable future, she had to have rehabilitation services, and 24-hour care. There were some interesting points that were brought up about this case. A black bear expert has found some commonalities when there's usually attacks. His name was Paul Pedito, and his title was actually the project leader for the Maryland Wildlife and Heritage Service. After the attack, he said that he was actually surprised that there hadn't been a bear attack previously in modern Maryland. Um, at the time of Karen Osborne's attack, there were about 2,000 bears in the western four counties, but the population was growing and was expected to go eastward, so coming towards the eastern shore, but at the same time, you know, I don't see them crossing the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. They would have to go a long way around to get to the eastern shore. But there are two commonalities that he would usually see when there were bear attacks, and that's a dog being nearby and that the bear has been fed or has become comfortable being around humans. In Ms. Osborne's case, she was actually looking for some company that was expected, and when she heard her daughter's dog barking, she went outside, and that's when she was attacked. It was believed as well that people in the neighborhood had been feeding the bear. There had been nine reports also that bears were in the neighborhood once they interviewed neighbors. This particular bear that attacked Ms. Osborne had actually been reported to the Wildlife and Heritage Service previously. She had raided a chicken coop. So fortunately, she did test negative for rabies. So that was one thing that Ms. Osborne wouldn't have to worry about. But it also did mean that the bear was put down. It was a female bear, and she had three cubs, 
but fortunately they were all grown enough that they would be able to survive on their own. They each weighed approximately 60 pounds. So here again we see where even if it's good intentions and trying to make sure that in this case the bear is fed and taken care of, it can have unintended repercussions where some people are hurt. Now, surprisingly, because I did know about this attack, but I did not know that there had been another attack after this. This one took place in September of 2020. Renee Laval did have commonalities with the previous case. She was walking with her dogs to German Shepherds in the town of Myersville. Now, in both cases as well, the dogs were off the leash. And Ms. Laval, while walking her two dogs, did see a bear at the edge of the woods, but one of her dogs began to chase it. The bear went after Ms. Laval instead of the dog. She was bitten two times by the bear, um, and both of these times were on her left knee, and he actually stomped on her chest. So that had to be terrifying. Ms. Laval decided that she needed to play dead and waited for the bear to leave before she called 911. She was flown, she was flown to Johns Hopkins, which is you know, a very big and well-known trauma center to treat her injuries. The bear had also stomped on her face and caused severe injuries. It took a four-hour surgery to try to sew up all of the injuries on her face. And at the time of the interview, she said that her face was very swollen. And at that point, they didn't know if she would have nerve damage above one of her eyes. So it could have very long-reaching implications for Ms. Osborne beyond the fact that now she must be you know, pretty hesitant about leaving her home or spending too much time outside. There were reportedly 12 sightings of bears in that area. So again, the population has been growing. Some other things were pointed out in this particular case. One was kind of the surprise factor that a bear is not expecting to see a human and they might lash out just to kind of display dominance or to protect themselves. In this case, the dogs also startled the bear. So that led to, unfortunately, Ms. Osborne being attacked. Another good point that I don't think is really thought of as much is unintentional feeding of the bears. And that could be in anything such as bird feeders was one of the things mentioned. And I also have to wonder if bears will possibly go through garbage cans if they can get into someone's yard. So even without intending to feed the bears, some people in that area were inadvertently doing so. Unfortunately, the increase in the bear population has led to incidents such as car accidents where someone will either swerve to miss a bear or hit the bear. And also, sadly, bear hunts. So... There are organized hunts to try to control the bear population and 
in doing so, they actually target more females than males. So looking at one article from the 2016 hunt, 166 bears were killed, with one of them being a 307-pound male. So that was quite large. And the total numbers in regards to trying to target females to keep the population down was that 110 females and 57 males were killed. The actual heaviest bear was 559 pounds, so quite large, but the average weight was only 142 pounds, which leads me to think that you know, many of the bears were pretty small that were actually killed. So I do find it sad that bears are being killed because they're encroaching on humans, but at the same time, it was the bear's habitat to begin with. I know that can become pretty controversial or polarizing, so I'm not going to discuss that too much further. But with the fact that hunts are being held and that many bears are being killed does show that there is an increasing population of bears. So everyone, I think we've come to the end of the episode. Thank you for letting me kind of go a little bit off of Delmarva, um, just because, you know, it, like I said, it's pretty interesting to have it that close um, to where we are on Delmarva if you live in the area, or just also interesting, interested in seeing that the bear population is not just in some of the areas you may automatically think of, like, you know, in the forested western national parks, but closer to the eastern shore as well. If you can, please share this podcast with your friends and family that you think might be interested in this type of content, as well as the Mystifyingly Missing podcast, which, because it's a long name, I'll just call it Mystifyingly Missing. And if you do have a chance, depending on how you listen, please like, subscribe, or leave a comment. That makes it easier for others to you know, try to find the podcast. And lastly, I do have also a PayPal page or link and a Buy Me a Coffee link if anybody would like to donate to the podcast. I do know that times are very tight for everyone. It would just make it a little easier to find or have access to certain content um, such as subscription services for archives or newspapers, as well as when needed, any upgrades to equipment. Um, I'm really my own tech person and doing everything myself. So um, admittedly, as far as equipment goes, it's pretty basic just because I've looked at some of the things you can get and thought there's no way I can do all of that. But I am you know, like I said earlier, making an effort to try to get at least either some software or better um, like noise absorption equipment as I don't have any place in the home where I can set up like a dedicated studio. So again, with some cyber deals, I'm hoping to possibly be able to get at least um, the items that can help you know, absorb sound and block it out from the microphone. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and sticking here until the end. It was a little bit of a different episode, and 
I know at times it may have covered more history or more scientific aspects. Um, I did want to kind of delve into those a little bit more, but that was really outside of the purview of the podcast. And I wanted to keep it as close to you know, the normal topics that we cover. So just exploring the more scientific or historical aspects when they became relevant um, to the topic that I was actually discussing. So I hope that everybody has a great rest of your week. We are now entering the last month of 2023, which seems amazing because it just feels like the whole year has flown by. And with each year, my children are getting closer to graduation and making me want to cry. So I hope everybody enjoys the rest of 2022. And I will be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.